Welcome, welcome everyone to our Tesla tour, uh, where we say building EVs is a true art. Uh, minions, minions, no talking to reporters now. Ooh, that Russ Mitchell, that guy is too smart. Hey, Poles, you done with those poems yet? Uh, yes, Georgia. I have some ideas with which I am playing. Uh, I'm reminded of Butter's Kissing Company on South Park, if you know what I am saying. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye, all ye who hear this here podcast know this. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors. Do your own research before making investment decisions, and we do hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, with that, I think all signs would indicate that we're ready. Russ Mitchell, welcome to TC's Chartcast. So great that you could join us. I'm happy to be here. Yes, we're very excited to have you. You're a... um, a reporter for the LA Times, but we will let you do your bio, but we're, we're super thrilled that you could join us. We have a lot of questions about the media and the profession of reporting and covering companies and finance uh, and Tesla in particular. But before we dive into all of those things, uh, why don't we uh, find out who is Russ Mitchell, uh, where were you born, where were you raised, and how did you get to become uh, the reporter that you are today? I am uh, 66 years old. I live in uh, Berkeley, California now, but I was born in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Naval Hospital. My dad was in the Navy at the time during the Korean War. He was on the uh, aircraft carrier Coral Sea. He didn't see Korean War action, um, but uh, he did travel to Europe and back from Guantanamo Navy Base and uh, had a little bit of adventure there. Um, After his stint in the Navy was done, we... uh, returned to my parents' home of Chicago on the south side, um, actually a few miles away from Francine McKenna, who we've interviewed uh, earlier on the show, although we did not know one another. Um, My dad installed switchboards for uh, what was known as Illinois Bell at the time, Uh, very blue collar. I was uh, the oldest of, I am the oldest of five. Um, The south side, we lived on the South side until I was about uh, five at about 63rd and Western for people who know Chicago and moved to the suburbs. My parents wanted a uh, better life, uh, but it, 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 this was not a motivation for my parents, but a motivation for others. This was the time of uh, redlining and uh, white flight. And um, uh, the so our, our little uh, Levittown-like suburb built on an old airfield, uh, uh, was filled with um, white, largely Catholic uh, ethnicities who were fleeing their neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. Um, it was a uh, kind of a tough neighborhood because it was still urban based on the people moving there. Um, even in the suburb, there were uh, street gangs, not, you know, super Black Peace donation type street gangs, but uh, gangs that would do crimes and beat you up for the fun of it. Um, sometimes there were fights between the gangs with chains and baseball bats, but uh, no guns at the time, luckily. So where I grew up, if you weren't a tough guy, and I wasn't, you still had to toughen up or you'd be a victim. Uh, 
And uh, so I was forced to do that. And I think that attitude has uh, stuck with me for, for good and for ill. Um, I couldn't afford to go away to college, but I started working at various factories nearby to save up the money. Um, I made uh, water heaters. I made sugar wafers for Nabisco. I slit tape at uh, 3M. Uh, and my first year of college, uh, I attended uh, Chicago State University at 95th and King Drive, which was an overwhelmingly uh, black uh, college. I think I was one of three people in the three white people in the uh, freshman class. Um, but I had saved enough. I wanted to go to journalism school and had saved enough money from the factory jobs to attend uh, journalism school at the University of uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, but I started my journalism career started uh, earlier uh, when I was in grade school. My uh, one of my brothers had to be hospitalized for several months, and I put together a newspaper for him when my parents visited. The kids weren't allowed to visit. Called the Home Herald, and uh, we uh, listed every. I listed everything going on at home, including uh, a little crime sheet that had the uh, the. Uh, uh, misbehaviors and the punishments meted out. Um, a few years later, I had a little paper uh, in eighth grade done on a mimeograph machine. That's how long ago it was. So I got kicked out of the eighth grade uh, for defending the First Amendment after I saw a fight in the lunchroom between Dan Maher and uh, Kirk Tuttle. And uh, the paper was supposed to come out that day. I uh, did a new sheet, a new front page, titled it uh, Tuttle Maher in Lunchroom Brawl, um, wrote up the story, uh, jacked up the price to uh, from, I think, a nickel to 20 cents. I don't remember, a quarter probably. Um, and uh, the story uh, was very uh, vivid. It had the two guys uh, being pushed across the lunch tables. It had one guy picking up a uh, hostess Susie Q and smashing it into the guy's face. And the part that got me in trouble, which uh, I'm kind of embarrassed for, and if I wasn't an eighth grade kid, I certainly wouldn't have done it. But uh, they knocked Claude, uh, I won't say her name. Her first name was Claudette. Her purse her, her purse got knocked off the table. Out of the table rolled a brassiere, and out, out of the brassiere rolled uh, two Kleenex. And I actually put that in the story. Poor Busted. <laughs> Pun intended. So... Uh, <laughs> So I, um, I uh, printed up, uh, raised the price, went to the playground. I was just, people were just surrounding me, holding their quarters or dimes or whatever it was in the air, when suddenly I felt uh, Principal Slavinsky's hand on my shoulder and said, come with me, Mr. Mitchell. He came into the office and uh, told me I couldn't sell the paper. I think if he had brought up Claudette and her embarrassment, I would have been a little bit more amenable, but uh, he was just uh, basically telling me I, I couldn't sell it. I reminded him of the First Amendment. Um, he continued to say I couldn't sell it and to give him the papers. And uh, I said, well, what about the First Amendment? And he said, Mr. Mitchell, if you say First Amendment one more time, you're going home. So I stood up and put my palms on the desk and <laughs> leaned over in his face and said, First Amendment. So uh, he kicked me out. My parents brought me back the next day. They made me apologize. Uh, they were upset I got kicked out, but I think they were a little bit amused uh, by the whole thing. <laughs> I actually, uh, as we are, uh, 
<laughs> Once the internet came along, I looked up Claudette and uh, found her and we chatted. She had no memory of this. So either it wasn't a big deal to her or it was so traumatic, uh, it's been erased from her memory. Anyway, eventually I uh, made my way to uh, University of Illinois Journalism School, highly regarded journalism with a highly regarded newspaper, the Daily Illini. While I was there, we won the uh, best college paper in the country from Sigma Delta Chi. Uh, Roger Ebert is an alum, James Rustin, Hugh Hefner, uh, many others. Um, after college, my first job was not really journalism, although it involved putting out a newspaper. I put out the newspaper on the cruise ship Royal Viking Sky. Uh, we visited 33 countries, uh, including the Brezhnev uh, era in the Soviet Union. Uh, went across several oceans, uh, all the way to Tahiti and Bora Bora. After that, I got a job on the Southern Illinois newspaper in Southern Illinois, uh, covered prisons and coal mines. Uh, after that, I had a short stint, uh, not very satisfying stint as uh, the public relations officer for the Illinois prison system. Um, there's some stories there, but uh, I, don't want, I don't want to spend too much time on this. My next step was uh, Florida. The Sun Sentinel covered, uh, among other things, Miami riots, the Mariel boat lift. Uh, I didn't do much drug uh, Colombian gang coverage, but this was the uh, era of uh, Scarface uh, and uh, a fiction, fictional era, the Don Johnson days. Um, I got kind of tired of that, decided I, uh, I was always interested in uh, the mountains and uh, moved to a little paper in Oregon to be a mountain man and started covering up uh, business and technology. Um, this is in Corvallis, Oregon. Uh, lovely, lovely place, but a little bit too slow for my taste. I applied for a fellowship for science and technology journalists at MIT. Uh, went to MIT for a year under the Vannevar Bush Fellowship. We brought in people like uh, Marvin Minsky and Stephen Jay Gould and David Baltimore and all kinds of hotshot MIT people. Eventually that led to a job at Business Week where I covered uh, technology and business. I started out in Detroit, uh, Roger Smith days, Lee Iacocca is still there. Uh, Detroit was, it was in the eighties. Detroit was really in horrible shape. The cars were just horrible. Um, after that, Business Week sent me to Connecticut, uh, the Connecticut Bureau, which they had at the time. And I covered General Electric, spent a lot of time with uh, Jack Welch and people like that. Went on to Minneapolis. I've been a lot of places. <laughs> Went on to Minneapolis, uh, uh, focused a lot on Cray, Cray Supercomputer Company, did a profile of Seymour Cray. Uh, after that, went to Washington, D.C. to cover the Pentagon. Uh, covered uh, the Pentagon and uh, congressional hearings leading up to the first Gulf War. Went to uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, interviewed uh, Schwarzkopf. I spent uh, time on the uh, border of uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait with the uh, head of logistics for the army. Uh, hitchhiked my way across the border into Kuwait City the day after liberation with my colleague John Rassant at those kinds of adventures. After that, San Francisco Bureau Chief for Business Week, which I did for a few years in the early 90s. Uh, it was a lot easier back then to cover CEOs. Uh, I knew Grove, I knew Gates, I knew Jobs, Scott McNeely, Larry Ellison, on and on and on. Parlayed that into a job as managing editor of Wired in Wired's uh, early days. Uh, went on to uh, 
work at U.S. News as a tech writer under Jim Fallows when he was running it. Um, worked at uh, as an editor of uh, Business 2.0. Worked at Condé Nast Portfolio uh, in the short time that was alive. And uh, in 2014, moved to the LA Times as tech editor and moved to the uh, current beat, driverless cars, electric cars, and Tesla. And here I am. Well, Russ, it's a fascinating background, and you know you have certainly seen a lot uh, and heard a lot and written about a lot. I imagine you know you've had a lot of pulse racing experiences over the years, covering all of those different areas and parts of the world. Um, you know, it would really behoove us to have some of our conversation with you today, um, before we get into the specifics of Tesla, to really talk about journalism as a profession. And something that I think could use some uh, deeper understanding is what makes something publishable. Um, and, you know, you cover automotive now. You've covered a, a whole range of topics throughout your career, as, as you've just outlined. Um, walk us through what it means to be a journalist and to be on the, the trail of a story, uh, to be gathering string, uh, to pull in a phrase that uh, Roddy Boyd granted us last week, and to get to the point where something can, in fact, be published and, and what that process is like and some ways that that might be changing uh, in today's environment. Well, to be publishable um, at a newspaper or a magazine, well, well, at a news magazine, I should say, or a newspaper, it needs to be newsworthy. Uh, which means actual breaking news or some sort of feature or analysis piece that uh, reflects on the news. Uh, to be publishable, it needs to be backed by facts. Uh, we strive to keep our facts straight. We correct facts when they're wrong. Most uh, reputable journalism publications do this. It's not only ethical, a uh, core part of the mission to be as factual as we possibly can be. But uh, running corrections is embarrassing to reporters and editors involved and uh, can even affect your performance reviews or lead to losing your job. So there are personal reasons to strive to get the facts uh, right also. Uh, source material comes from all over the place, company statements, official documents, phone calls, a lot of reading. Um, the human sources are, uh, most of the people we talk to are willing to be quoted. Uh, we talk to a lot of people, probably 80, 90% of the things we talk about never make their way in. Uh, some of it is just, uh, you know, not interesting, but, uh, some of it may be interesting, but there's only so much you can write about, uh, in a newspaper, uh, story or, or even a magazine story. So a lot of it just ends up on the cutting room floor. Uh, those sources, we do background sources. They need to be trustworthy. Uh, we try to depend on more than one source in any case. On occasion, we'll use a single source if uh, they've been proven to be entirely trustworthy, but that rarely happens. Usually we back it up with documents or other kinds of uh, factual material. Um if we can't verify something, uh, we don't run it. Um, if there's speculation, and often there is, we point out that it's speculative. Um, sometimes we can't write a story because it can't be, it could be verified in my mind or in a reporter's mind or in a publication's mind. But if we can't make sure it's verified in the reader's mind, we don't run it. I've 
got one explosive story right now about a major corporation with documents, uh, but no one, including the person who slipped me the documents, is willing to go on the record for fear of retribution. Uh, there's another publication that this person has approached who's also sitting on the same story for the same reason, uh, because we can't, uh, uh, although I am absolutely certain this explosive story is true, uh, we can't get anybody involved to talk about it. So that won't see the light of day, uh, at least uh, until we find someone who is, will is willing to go public or until a uh, federal agency takes action on the matter. They're aware of it. Uh, but they're sitting on it. So uh, maybe that'll see the light of day. We'll see. But uh, uh, getting facts straight, verifying uh, the truth as well as we can, um, and uh, going with stories who are confident uh, are accurate are all uh, things that make a story publishable, in addition to interest and newsworthiness. So Russ, it's, uh, I'm deeply fascinated by the profession of journalism. Um, and you you participate in what I think is an evolving form of journalism, although not professional, which is Twitter and FinTwit. Um, famously, Skabushka, you know, in his uh, legal battle with Elon Musk, uh, characterized himself as a citizen journalist. Um, I would characterize Georgia and myself and many other members of Tesla Q as a citizen journalist. Um, but at the same time, uh, we don't, we're not professional reporters. And also we, openly invest, um, either long or short in various companies that we may or may not tweet about or cover, um, just to get it out of the way, because I know many of the Tesla bulls will accuse reporters of having a slant. Um, have you ever, or is it like restricted that you would ever take a position in a, in a company that you're covering or, or one of their securities? I assume the answer is no, but I just want to get that out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. No. I mean, it would be unethical for me to invest in, in, uh, individual companies that I cover, uh, any investments uh, that I do have uh, based on my meager journalism salary is uh, in index funds. Um, there are very few individual stocks that I've owned over the years, but they've had, they're in industries that have nothing to do uh, with what I cover. So uh, uh, while I believe you can be objective while having uh, a, a, a position in a company uh, from a journalism perspective, uh, historical journalism perspective, uh, you need to be as bulletproof as possible when it comes to bias. And while everyone has some personal bias, and of course, where news events and people's behavior can cause you to look at a story from a particular point of view, uh, there should be no political or financial interest um, in, in uh what we cover and how we cover it. So uh, to protect ourselves, we, we, we don't do that. And that, that leads to my follow-up question, because what we have today is, is a wide gradient of journalistic activities going on by a wide gradient of individual actors. Um, and so there's Twitter, there's traditional reporting like yours at the LA Times, and then there's this whole new phenomenon in between, say, for example... Um, electric and Fred Lambert is long Tesla and discloses it at least at some points while he's reporting. He does break news. He does report on Tesla, but I wouldn't say it's traditional journalism because he's also long the stock and has other 
derives other financial benefits from his association with, uh, with Tesla, not the least of which is the advertising revenue of his website. If he does that, I don't know, but I'm assuming there's other value streams from being a high-profile person in the Tesla story. Um, any thoughts on how journalism is evolving? You're on Twitter, but you're a professional journalist. Um, what's your experience been on Twitter? Um, you know, there's a, a thousand different ways we can go with this, but I just want to sort of put it out there and see what your, your visceral response is to that. Yeah, there are a thousand ways to go. Uh, my visceral response is that journalism isn't evolving, it's devolving, um, caused by uh, a change in distribution channels and the presence of organizations like Google and Facebook who are stealing the content from the few jur professional journalism operations that are left that have uh, are increasingly make it, making it financially uh, impossible uh, to do the traditional job of journalism. Russ, you know, my pseudonym on the show and on Twitter is Georgia Orwell, an obvious play on George Orwell, who, who wrote 1984. Um, and it would, um, I think, be an omission for me to not take this opportunity, given that, to ask you what you think about some of these post-editorial changes that come with the nature of electronic publishing. Um, you know, to borrow a phrase from 1984, uh, things, uh, information and things that are written can very much uh, be flushed down the memory hole uh, very easily. And in fact, we find that that happens, you know, with articles being edited electronically after the fact. And sometimes that is made clear, but quite often it's not. Um, what is your position on that and how do you manage that? I don't know specifically how the LA Times handles that. I'm speaking very broadly. Um, but all manner of publications, professional journalist outlets, Wall Street Journal and, and LA Times, I assume, and so forth, will often cite, you know, last edited with a time and date, but not always clear what was edited um, on the one hand, one could argue that that is simply making much-needed corrections for uh, maybe some early uncertainties in the articles. Um, others could be that it is, um, you know, generating fanfare with one position and then changing it over time without really an acknowledgement of that, and the public uh, then has uh, a detrimental interpretation of what is being published. Um, what is your perspective on what is happening now that we're in an electronic space where things can change uh, without a trace? The move to digitization in the internet has fundamentally changed even the way journalism, professional journalism is done. Um, I think, and uh, my organization and similar organizations believe it should not affect uh, the, the ethical culture of professional journalism. But inevitably, and, and I also should say that I think citizen journalism is a great thing, uh, especially when um, professional news staffs are being reduced. There's a need for people to find out what's happening in the world and report it. I think that's a good thing. The bad thing is that, uh, well, it's also a good thing that anybody can do it. So somebody like Skabusha or you guys, uh, can find your niche and uh, and approach it in a, in a to one degree or another a professional manner, uh, and I think all that is appreciated. Um, the problem is that because anybody can join in, there are a lot of people who are um, what can I say have agendas to push. Um, people who 
and, and let me say that journalists have agendas to push and they're very high minded. And if I go through them, it'll sound like I'm on my high horse. Uh, but so be it. It's to find out the truth of what's happening in the world. When we touched on no financial interest, trying to be as objective as possible. So there's a lot of non-objective information being put out in an infinite variety of channels. And uh, so there's more information than there's ever been. There might actually be more good information out there than there's ever been. Trying to find it is the problem. Um, to get more specific on uh, the question you asked, uh, one of the ways in which journalism has changed is that stories can be updated, which is good. Uh, at the LA Times, we when we correct a story, we note that in our digital file. We note that in the print section. If it's a simple grammatical error or a typo, we're unlikely to say the story's been updated. Anything substantial, though, we're required uh, at the LA Times to uh, note that uh, uh, we've we've changed something uh, fundamental in the story and that you should know about it. Again, most of most reputable publications uh, do this. If you're depending on news from Twitter, which you know I unfortunately uh, depend on for a lot of my reporting, and I say unfortunately because it's addictive. It's kind of crushing to the emotions when you see how many really despicable people are out there. Yet, it's a great communication channel for people who are intelligent, informed, uh, and uh, uh, willing to trade information. Uh, so I get sources that I just wouldn't be able to touch all these people every day on the telephone. Uh, which is the way things used to be done. So it's it's broadened out my reporting. At the same time, um, uh, I kind of wish it didn't exist because of the emotional toll it takes. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can, there's some folks on this end of this interview that can relate. Uh, yeah. Let me, let me follow up on that because, and then we'll, we'll dive into Tesla. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter too, just like you. It's addictive. Um, I, I try to put good quality content out. The thing that's great about Twitter is the self-correcting distillation, sort of Darwinian aspect of it. Um, you know, people follow various accounts in numbers for a reason. And so, yes, there are trolls and there are bots and there are negative people. And some of those people develop a following because one of the things we've learned is polarity sells um, and that the Twitter algorithm is designed to distill negativity. But at the same time, it's, it's a wonderfully dynamic, self-correcting, Darwinian information distiller. And you can learn things so much quicker on Twitter than even the Bloomberg terminal. Um, we'll know stuff 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes before it shows up on Bloomberg. And sometimes the stuff we learn never shows up on Bloomberg, um, which then gives you an insight into the biases of various publications and, and things like that. But so overall on Twitter, um, you're one of the highest, you're a, high, a reasonably high profile reporter on Twitter for the story that you cover. But there are other beat reporters on this story that are also on Twitter. Um, overall, you know, net positive, net negative. Um, how would you sort of characterize the flow, the dynamic, um, you know, uh, are you on it all day? Do you check in the morning? Do you check at night? Do you sort of assign times for you? How do you manage your Twitter flow and, and, and the information flow that comes from it? 
Yeah, the, the positives outweigh the negatives, uh, no question. Um, I'm on it a lot more than I would like to be. Uh, just like I try to cut back on coffee, I try to cut back on uh, Twitter, and uh, during some periods, I'll try to stick to just the morning and then at noon and then the evening. Uh, but then uh, because of the addictive nature, I'll get pulled in or because there's a topic that really merits uh, close attention, uh, I'll pay attention to to Twitter more. Um, but yeah, it's an, it's, it's an essential part of, uh, I haven't really talked to other reporters. I know other reporters use Twitter. I don't know how many use it for reporting other than finding sources or just to uh, find a uh, distribution vehicle for their stories. But uh, particularly in the area I cover, uh, I, I'd say Twitter is uh, is essential, and since it's essential, the positives, you know, outweigh the negatives. Now, as a journalist, uh, you know there isn't really an opportunity for you to have uh, reviews of your work in the way that a podcast does. But I suspect that if there were reviews of your work, it might have a similar pattern to what ours is, which is a lot of uh, a lot of folks very complimentary of your work, giving you five stars, and then a lot of folks on the other end giving you one star, depending on their bias. On the Tesla piece is what I'm talking about specifically. Um, it's a very polarizing name. Um, you know, we've certainly found that with this podcast, our review our, our hook'em horns. You know, we've got nothing in the middle. It's all fives and ones. Um, what is it like to uh, navigate such a polarized world and still be um, presenting uh, as much of an unbiased view as possible to give the straight story on what you're observing? You've been following Tesla and reporting on Tesla for quite some time. Maybe walk us through how you got started with the name and what you've observed for from that um, kind of the behavior of those that are also following along with your reporting? In 2014, I was hired as technology editor at the uh, LA Times. Uh, the company was owned by the Tribune Company, which got taken over by uh, Trunk. Horrible, horrible company uh, that was bleeding the company for cash flow, which a lot of hedge funds are doing with newspapers. Um, there's still, up until the COVID uh, crisis, there was still cash to be uh, taken from uh, print ads. Um, so the general approach is to either gradually or aggressively keep cutting costs and laying off people and letting the cash flow into executive pockets. That's basically the uh, corporate strategy for a lot of newspaper owners these days. Um, perfectly legal. Not very admirable, not very good for democracy, but there you go. Uh, Tronk is one of those companies. Um, I actually, I got so disgusted, I quit um, for a few months, but came back with my tail between my legs because I missed the LA Times so much. And despite Tronk, um, I think the LA Times, through all the travails it's been through, the culture of the editorial staff has uh, remained... Uh, committed to high quality journalism. It's also always been, well, I shouldn't say always been because I haven't always been there, but uh, since I've been there and from what I can tell has always been a really great group of people, very smart, very cooperative. Uh, I just really missed the place and it's newsroom culture. So um, I came back in 2016. They agreed to hire me back to cover uh, electric cars. Drive. I knew I had to come up with something that was uh, compelling to get my job back. So um, uh, 
I began covering electric cars, driverless cars, other new transportation uh, technologies, including Tesla. And um, since then, Tronc sold the company to Patrick Sunshang, a biotech entrepreneur in Los Angeles. Um, he has reinvested in the newspaper. Uh, he's done wonderful things. Um, he's really taken a hit since uh, advertising disappeared with COVID. Uh, but I, I hope uh, we can get back to some sense of normalcy, which is losing a little bit of money instead of a lot of money, um, and that uh, things will keep going. Um, but you asked about Tesla and how I started covering Tesla. I, uh, you know, you guys have asked several people about uh, their moments of revelation. And when I came in, like many of the people you've interviewed, I was impressed by what Tesla had done uh, with the cars it was putting out. Um, I hadn't really paid attention to Musk other than the lavish praise he was getting in the media across the country. I had a little inkling about what was going on because um, prior to me coming to the beat, there was a guy named Jerry Hirsch who went to uh, trucks.com to head that operation uh, that did a story about uh, all the subsidies uh, Tesla was getting. And Elon Musk called into the paper and was talking with, uh, was uh, yelling at several editors. He was so upset at the story we were going to do. And I was impressed to see that uh, the editors, uh, they did a careful job of looking over the story, made sure it was uh, correct and fair. And uh, we went with it. So I had an inkling that there was there was something a little bit odd about the company. Um, but it wasn't until I covered the um, Gigafactory opening. They brought reporters in to uh, cover that, probably 30 reporters. Um, and I had... I started realizing that this was kind of a bizarre company and have since concluded over the years that it's, I've been around uh, covering business and technology for decades and I would characterize this and I would guess most of my colleagues at other publications do too, is the most bizarre and cult-like big company I've ever covered. Um, the, uh, and, and I want to give Musk his due to say that his cars, whatever you think about their quality or Tesla service operations, they're great fun to drive. I really think that the Model S is a beautiful car. This is subjective stuff, but I, I think it's a classic sedan. The Model 3 is not bad looking at all. He did popularize electric cars. I think electric cars are good for the planet. Um, I'd say he popularized electric cars, not necessarily in the way most people think, uh, rather than convincing other car makers that there was a market for electric cars, he convinced regulators that there was a market for electric cars. And he emboldened the regulators to stick to or create new edicts and incentives for electric cars. So I'm not taking a stand on whether that's good or bad. I think the, the governments have a right and an obligation to protect the environment. Um, but car makers naturally want to make a profit. So it's no wonder they weren't pushing EVs because even today, EVs aren't profitable. Uh, maybe due to this technology forcing by the government to take, you know, their their point of view, uh, they will uh, uh, be uh, um, profitable. And we'll see. I hope so. Uh, I have no problems with EVs at all. 
uh, on the open road, I love to drive ice cars. I love to drive those internal combustion engines. I love to drive ice cars. I love to drive EV, drive EVs. They're different. They have different characteristics. I'm a snowboarder, but I'm a snowboarder and a skier. Uh, either one is great. They're both a lot of fun. Uh, I have, uh, but there's no argument that ice cars are big contributors to global warming and other pollution. So let me, you know, make sure, you know, I've been accused of being anti-EV. Couldn't be farther from the truth. But um, so early on when I was covering Tesla, uh, the media relations team treated me pretty well. Um, when I went to the Gigafactory, they had me try a Model S there and back. Uh, I interviewed Musk by phone several times, six or seven LA times. Uh, 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 reporters and editors were invited in uh, to SpaceX at Hawthorne to talk with uh, Musk and Gwynne Shotwell for an hour. Uh, it was a pleasant conversation. Um, but to the revelatory moment uh, at the Gigafactory, it wasn't dramatic, but it was kind of weird. And that reporters were invited in for the for the tour, for a tour of the under construction factory. Um, I visited countless factories in my career: GM, Ford, uh, Boeing, uh, water heater factories, tea bag factories. Um, and I've always chatted up the line workers just to be friendly, not trying to get any inside information. But uh, uh, I worked in factories, putting myself through college. And uh, I didn't want to be just these, you know, this face uh, coming through with the people in suits. So, you know, my nature was just to chat them up a little bit. Nobody at any of these companies ever stopped me from doing that before Tesla. But the couple of people I did approach at Tesla, I had a Tesla PR worker come up and pull me away by the sleeve. Um, and it's, it wasn't just the line workers. There was a a, a, factor, a factory executive uh, high up, new to the company. I don't recall his name offhand, but he was in the tour group I was in, the executive on the tour group with a couple of PR people and six or seven reporters. He had come from uh, Lego in Denmark. And uh, I started talking to him and also I was pulled away. He was the, he was the uh, guy that was supposed to be representing the company taking us around, but they didn't want me off to the side having a chat uh, with the guy. That seemed bizarre to me. Um, and by the look on his face, I thought that that was weird too. Uh, he doesn't work there anymore, I'm told. Um, so I've been criticized by, by people on Twitter for overly focusing on the negative at, at uh, Tesla, but it's hard to do positive stories about a company like Tesla that has that kind of approach. Um, at the time, I thought a profile of the Lego guy would be, you know, something quick, but somewhat interesting. A guy who goes from making Legos to making car batteries, uh, just a little profile that would inevitably be a positive story. I wouldn't mean it to be po positive or negative, but uh, that's just how it would turn out. Um, I would do that at companies I've covered in the past, do profiles about different executives, different ways of operating. I'd be doing negative stories about the company. Companies, I'd be doing positive stories about the company. That's the way it works. Everybody knows that. Um, Tesla PR said that, you know, that profile would be possible, but of course it never happened. Um, they've gone through a lot of heads of PR. Uh, they don't even seem to have a PR department anymore. But uh, with each new PR head, I'd asked to go out and have coffee with them. And I'd meet them at, uh, very nice. Most of them were nice people. Meet them for coffee. Uh, 
And uh, I tell them I'd, you know, they'd complain about some of my stories. I'd ask them to correct any facts they couldn't, you know, they found no factual problems. Um, even on the fairness question, they had trouble, except that they thought it was negative. Uh, so I'd say I'd love to do positive stories, like, for instance, how Tesla designs its cars. Uh, they said they'd like it too, but that never happened. So, you know, the, the only executives at Tesla that talk to the media with very, very few occasional exceptions is Elon Musk. And he even he doesn't do that anymore. And when he does it now, it's to leak information to electric or to influence somebody that's writing a book on the company. But he doesn't hold press conferences. He doesn't talk to the press. So, you know, the critics are going to have a, a, a louder voice. Uh, I do my best to try to balance things out. But the only, you know, I do talk to short sellers. They, uh, they know, and, and I should talk about short sellers and journalism in, in a few minutes, but um, they have insight into the company. Um, I'd love to talk to long uh, investors, bullish investors, but uh, there's Ross Gerber and this guy Galley, and f- frankly, I don't get much hardcore information. It's, it's uh, especially when it comes to the finance, it's always something off in the future. I would love to talk about finance with the big. Uh, investors uh, uh, in the company, Bailey Gifford and several others, but they have no interest in talking. So, you know, I'm left to report with what I have available. Um, I would love to give their side of the story, but uh, they don't seem to want to tell it. Um, And like Trump, Musk communicates on Twitter. It's kind of bizarre because, okay, here's another way the company differs from other companies I've covered. He lied about buyout deals and got uh, um, in trouble with the SEC. Uh, He was charged with fraud, Uh, kept his job as CEO. I can't imagine that happening at another company. He pretends commercial products exist like the solar roof when they don't. He accuses people of pedophilia who who criticize him. So um, I guess he has the right to do stuff that's legal. Uh, and uh, that's his right. But that doesn't mean it's not bizarre and uh, unlike any other business executive or business company I've covered. So Russ, let's dig into that. Because <clears throat> one of the things you mentioned was Trump and Lord knows his relationship with the media is interesting. I think Elon shares a lot of attributes with Trump, in not the least of which is sort of this um, gaslighting, claiming one thing which is 100% provably the opposite of the truth all the time, and then creating enemies in the media. Um, Elon famously um, threatened, as if anyone would be threatened by it, uh, to create something called Pravda, where he would score the media for you know, the authenticity of their reporting. It brings up, up a broader question, and, and you, you and many of the other line reporters uh, on Tesla get accused of being biased and being short sellers or being negative on the company. If you come to conclude something about a company, oh, I don't know, let's just assume you come to conclude that um, company A is a fraud. They're running a promotion fraud or they're running accounting fraud. Um, how do you separate what you think you know versus the bias and the fairness that you have to show in your sort of reporting. And I understand there's a difference between reporting and opinion pieces. And so, for example, I would draw a distinction between 
the things you write and the things that um, Charlie Grant writes at the Wall Street Journal because he write, he basically writes an opinion column. Um, for back, lack of a better term, I'm sure he wouldn't describe it precisely that way, but it's mostly opinion. Um, whereas you are sort of more of a traditional beat reporter writing stories that are of interest. But if you come to believe that something isn't right at a company or a, a certain executive is doing certain things, like you, based on stories perhaps that you couldn't publish, you know, because the, you know it's Stone Cold Truth, you referenced earlier an explosive story that you haven't been able to publish. How do you, you, you can't not allow that to color the rest of your reporting. How do you walk that line? How do, you know, how do you, so what do you, what's your response to people who say, oh, you're just biased? But I mean, ultimately, if you believe something to be true, is that really bias? No, if you believe something to be true, uh, it's not bias at all. Um, publishing it is a different story, though. I mean, um, n- number one, you have to be able to prove what you think is true is actually true um, and do it in a way that's bulletproof. So reporters work on hunches all the time. And Tesla offers abundant opportunity for hunches. Um, they are, as I said, utterly unlike any other company, even when it comes to things like accounting. The problem with uh, accounting and journalism is that most reporters, even in business, don't really have deep training in accounting. I don't. I've taken, I've taken, uh, I've, I've always uh, I've been a, like an autodidact uh, on the accounting side through my career. And I've taken several finance and uh, uh, accounting courses at uh, uh, Berkeley, which is where I live. But uh, that doesn't make me an expert by any means, but it gives me an opportunity to ask the right questions. But some of this and, and another problem with covering um, accounting and whether something is fraudulent or not is uh, language used both by company executives and in uh, documents, and in the documents particularly, uh, are written t- purposely, I would say, to be obscure, not just Tesla, most companies, I would say. Uh, they want to shade um, the way the numbers are presented. And uh, if they want to, if, they, if they're uh, required to report something but want to hide it or minimize it, you'll see a lot of very, very hard to parse language uh, stating that. So it takes a lot of work, a lot of time. Uh, we're short-staffed. Everybody's short-staffed. Um, and the bar to call something fraud in uh, a newspaper like ours is very, very high. Fraud is a subjective term, as far as I can tell, even um, statutorily. Um, so we would stay away from uh, that word, unless you know we had uh, damning, damning evidence. But questionable is a word we might use, and um, I think that there's a uh, a lot of questionable uh, elements to uh, Tesla's accounting. Much of it, unfortunately, would be of very little interest to LA Times readers because it's so esoteric. And uh, unless it's something that creates a much bigger story that readers can understand, uh, it's unlikely to find its way into print. I wish there were, there are some excellent publications out there, ProPublica, the uh, Wall Street Journal sometimes does some great work uh, that can go deeper into um, 
these kinds of accounting matters. I wish there were there were more because it's a it's a rich area uh, for abuse and a rich area for uh, reporting and uh, something I think the public uh, needs to know more about. I'm not talking about any particular company here, but uh, um, there's there is a lot of fraud out there. I'm sure of that. Well, there certainly is a lot to be said for digging beneath the surface. And and we've talked about this from various angles with a lot of the great guests we've had on this show um, and have touched on some of the things that you're touching on as well, which is the challenge of getting into a level of detail required uh, to really parse through what's really happening at a company um, and how you balance that with both the level of interest and the attention span um, of readers and making something readable. Um, You know, newspapers are not typically publishing detailed, lengthy white papers, uh, you know, with uh, full extracts of 10Ks and and so forth and and deep uh, analytical discussion. And so there's a balance there. Uh, I'm recalling an interview that I believe Hedgeye had done with Jim Chanos maybe a year ago, and, and he talks about digging into a company. And if you really, you know, if you have a suspicion that things might not be exactly what they seem for good or bad, I mean, but just there's a skepticism there, you know, looking at what is published in the media would be kind of the outermost layer of the onion, but you're really not seeing what's there. It's, you know, then you go to what the pub, what the company itself has put out in its press releases. The next layer down is, you know, what those executives say and what they say on earnings calls. The next layer down is, uh, you know, what they're filing with the SEC. And that's really where you get to the meat of it. And very few individuals um, take the time uh, or have the interest, uh, you know, lives are busy to actually go through that, uh, you know, each rung of the ladder to, to get into the very detailed disclosures where you can start to pull that apart. Uh, and in the case of Tesla, those disclosures may be uh, equally opaque. But separate from Tesla, again, if we just keep it um, a little bit more general, um, what is the role of someone like a Jim Chanos, who is often taking a short position? Um, he's one of the more well-known names, but certainly there are many short sellers that are, um, you know, very active and vocal, and others that have a more quiet approach. Um, but what is the interaction between uh, short sellers and the art of journalism, uh, and how do you kind of interpret uh, things that might come out of uh, short seller research shops and so forth? Yeah, the uh, shorts. If you're a business journalist covering companies, particularly when they're sketchy business models or sketchy uh, financial approaches involved, and you're not talking to uh, smart, uh, dependable short sellers, you're not doing your job. Um, Let me say that there are scummy, just like there's scummy members of any business, including journalism, there are scummy short sellers out there. Particularly when I lived in Florida, I would get uh, hit up by um, the uh, the short side of bucket shops that would spread uh, rumors or want to spread rumors, uh, you know, to, to make a quick buck. And uh, they, in one case, you know, was actually lying and in other cases uh, uh, suspected of lying. I never did anything with that information, but they're out there. However, short selling is to me, uh, an essential uh, element of the stock markets um, or stock markets that should reflect reality. Um, You have got long investors 
that want to make money, good for them. Uh, you've got companies that want to make money, uh, good for them. You've got armies of public relations people telling the long side of a story about why a company is great. Nobody criticizes the press or the media for uh, repeating what the uh, public relations people have to say or what the long investors have to say. But there are companies and you can look at best-selling books. You can look at uh, decades of newspaper articles um, that are operating on the other side of the law or at least on the uh, borderline. And because they make money, they, short sellers aren't out to find a company to destroy other than the scummy ones I imagined I, I talked about earlier. Um, the um, uh, short sellers are out to make money by exposing the problems in a company uh, for personal profit, sure, but as an outcome, um, long sellers have a better chance of uh, determining whether their long positions are worthwhile. So I, I think it provides uh, service for the market, both for hedging and um, for getting the full truth out. Um, I think that if you are talking to short sellers as a journalist, you need to make sure they're on the up and up. Uh, you need to make sure that uh, the facts they give you square out. If any don't square out, don't talk to them again. But uh, the short sellers that I deal with either on the record or off the record and stick with know a lot about the companies that they're short in and are invaluable sources of information. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I've interacted with reporters. Um, oftentimes it's off the record just as a fact-checking exercise simply because as a skeptical person who is also obsessive, I have an enormous repertoire of data, good and bad, on Tesla. And I wonder if, broadly speaking, because it's so hard to make money selling short, this is the thing that longs and bulls and defenders of various frauds don't understand. Um, it's actually really hard to be a short seller, especially in the sort of ZERP, zero interest rate policy, easy money, quantitative easing environment. Um, if you just look at Muddy Waters, who has an, a practically unblemished track record of identifying Chinese frauds that eventually go to zero, his latest one, GSX, is up, I think, 14% since he identified it as a what I believe to be a stone-cold fraud. Um, my assumption is that, on balance, the good short sellers, the short sellers that do their work, do way more work than the typical long. Um, and it's so much easier to just you know, buy the dip um, and buy the index funds and float with the, float with the actions of central banks. And so I, I wonder, you know, when, because I know for a fact that reporters on this beat in particular, and, and it has to be perhaps at a lower t intensity, but certainly generalizable, that talking to a short seller is viewed as sort of proof of bias on, on the part of the reporter. Well, how do you respond to all of that? Because I think that short sellers do a ton of work and at a minimum are unbelievable uh, resources for facts uh, about a company. I, I totally agree. If all you're doing is talking to short sellers, then uh, that's a problem. But I think it's an essential, if, 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 if you're covering a company that's controversial in any way in terms of possible uh, accounting or legal iffiness, I think it's, and, and there are short sellers involved, it's, it's essential to talk to them. You need to keep your analytical hat on. You need to, uh, you know, be uh, aware of, uh, 
any source's biases. Um, speaking of biases, uh, nobody complains when uh, Wall Street uh, analysts are quoted in stories. They provide some interesting information, but you know they work for companies that do deals, very lucrative deals with the companies they're covering. It seems like it's supposed to. There's supposed to be something of a firewall between, but uh, it seems like a uh, um, a fantasy to think that there's no um, pressure on these analysts to be a little bit more positive about companies that uh, they make a lot of money from. I mean, it's you know it's almost common sense. So uh, when I talk to the analysts, I'll you know try to get. A positive side to a story that might be negative. Uh, I might be seeking, you know, hardcore information. They do do analysis on the companies. They do do a lot of numbers, but uh, everybody has some kind of ba- uh, bias. You need to account for that bias, uh, and you need to uh, keep your your reporter hat on and look for information that's valuable, truthful, and revelatory. Um, and uh, any the public relations people can be helpful in that way. The analysts can be helpful in that way. The short sellers can be helpful in that way, as long as you um, are, are, are hard headed about uh, uh, what you buy and what you don't buy and what you put in the story. Russ, I love that phrase, uh, valuable, truthful, and revelatory. I, we should take that on as a, as a tagline of what we hope to achieve uh, here with the TC's Chartcast. Um, let's talk a little bit about the EV market in general. Um, certainly, having uh, followed Tesla as long as you have, you can't follow that name without looking at um, the electrical ve- electric vehicle market uh, at large. Uh, you've recently begun covering Nikola as well, which is preparing for an IPO. One of the things that you mentioned earlier in our interview was that one of the accomplishments uh, that Elon Musk can lay claim to is having brought a lot of popularity to the electric vehicle um, in general. And uh, I'd, I'd like to dig into that a little bit more with you and what you've seen and, and what you're following and, and where you think this trend will go and, and maybe challenge it a bit uh, because one of the things that uh, seems a possible uh, conclusion is that Elon Musk has generated tremendous amount of enthusiasm and support for Teslas, uh, but I'm not so sure about EVs broadly. Um, You know, there are still a heavy reliance on subsidies um, globally. In the U.S., uh, you know, we've seen things like the uh, Jaguar I-Pace be, I'm sorry, the the Audi e-tron and uh, the Jaguar, is it E-Pace? It's I pace. It is I pace. I'm getting all the paces confused. They do have an E pace. It's not electric. (laughs) It's a little wacky. Anyways, point being is, you know, um, as those were reaching the market, there were very favorable terms to get those moving off the lot. The Chevy Volt uh, has been discontinued. And quite frankly, uh, those that are buying Teslas seem, you know, very consumed with the zero to 60 uh, times, which are a little contradictory to someone who's looking to save the planet. Um, what do you think? Is it really about EVs or is it about Teslas? Well, the numbers, and I don't have hard numbers in front of me, so don't uh, press me for those, but EVs that are not Teslas are not doing very well. The uh, EVs that are not Teslas in Europe are doing a lot better than they have, and Tesla's doing a lot worse in Europe uh, than it has. Uh, but 
EVs can't be considered wildly popular by any means. Um, that day may come, but uh, today is 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 not that day. I think that uh, Tesla. I think a lot of people who buy Teslas don't necessarily want an electric car. They want a Tesla. That's a testament to the brand that uh, Musk has built for himself and his company, uh, to the way the media has treated the company, uh, to the products, which is, again, to be fair, um, I don't know what the effect is on battery degradation, but they're really fast. They really come off the line fast. He, Musk himself, uh, from what I can tell, loved driving cars and uh the suspension system is, uh, there are better cars out there, but it's, they've got excellent suspension systems. They really hold the road. So, there, you know, there's some good things to say about the cars. But in my experience, people uh, want Teslas more than they want electric cars. That's the way it's, uh, the world's going so far. Um, but, you know, now you've got cars coming out like the, uh, the uh, Mustang, the new electric Mustang. There's going to be an electric Ford pickup truck. Uh, I've seen, haven't ridden in yet, the Volvo Polestar, which looks like, and by all indications, will be uh, a really great car. Um, uh, you know, it, the proof is in the riding, in the driving, but that's looking really good. Um, I also think that because um, people saw how clearly air was above Los Angeles and other urban areas uh, when the gasoline cars were left in the garage and not running uh, may give some people um, more uh, incentive uh, to buy electric cars, uh, give regulators more incentive to you know, hold the line on the tough incentives. Um, but if the customers don't come along, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to car makers who are in very, very deep economic trouble right now because of the COVID crisis um, and, uh, uh, but still face uh, tough regulations, especially, uh, especially in Europe and California. So Russ, it's been a great hour. I, I want to wrap up with a statement and then a, a broader question and maybe a commercial for the LA Times. Um, my <laughs> statement is as follows. There's a I own a Chevy Volt, um, as many of the people that follow me on Twitter will know. I think there is a distinct and valid environmental case for um, in EVs or BEVs or plug-in hybrids like the Chevy Volt, where you can get most of your driving on the battery and have a, an engine, gasoline-powered engine as a backup, um, that many that are skeptical of Tesla misunderstand. So I want to put it out there, which is um, you are taking distributed emissions and then bringing them back to the point source. So even if your electric car is powered by coal, you stand a far better chance of economically capturing the pollutants and removing things like NOx and you know the CO2 and all the other things that might um, impact the environment in a negative way. You stand a far better chance of economically tackling the point source of emissions at scale at an electric you know, power plant facility than you do distributed across millions of cars, pumping out things out the tailpipe uh, in the cities. And so I agree 100% with what you said, which is people are seeing now that if you don't drive a lot and you shut down the economy, the air is clean and the water is clean and that matters and there's value to that. And I'm perfectly willing 
to, um, to admit and to fight for the fact that the government needs to intervene in the market because there are externalities that don't get priced in. And one of the things that the government should do is try to push towards driving more on electric propulsion than internal combustion engines because I do believe there is a sincere and real environmental benefit to concentrating the emissions at the point source so that you can economically uh, address them. And so I am not anti-EV. I'm certainly not anti-environment. I'm very environmental. Uh, I think very hard about my own personal carbon footprint. Um, and I drive a Chevy Volt. It, it, it has reduced the vast majority of my emissions without almost any sacrifice whatsoever. And I think there is a, a place for government steering the market towards those types of solutions. But we could go on and that's a whole separate podcast and we'll probably will have an environmentalist on the podcast so we can discuss the ins and outs and, and what makes for good policy and, and what doesn't. But can, I, uh, can I make a quick comment on that? Absolutely, go ahead. Yeah, the uh, the Volt, tech, Volt, V-Volt, uh, General Motors, of course, confused matters by having a Volt and a Bolt. Um, the, the, the Volt technology is an awesome technology. Uh, I won't uh, go into the details here, but people can look it up online. Um, that uh, General Motors just botched the, uh, the marketing of. Um, it was, it's a very interesting technology. I did a story for Men's Health Magazine a few years ago on Bob Lutz, who uh, pushed the, the Chevy Volt. Uh, I'd recommend, uh, I don't recommend a lot of my stories, but that one worked out really well. So if you look up uh, Bob Lutz, Russ Mitchell, uh, you can find the story. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very interesting. But uh, yes, uh, I, th I think that EVs, particularly as we move more and more to renewable energy, uh, can contribute greatly to reducing uh, global warming, or at least uh, reducing the, the uh, increase in global warming and, uh, and in cleaner air. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the question is, what do you want to subsidize? How do you want to subsidize it? Who do you want to subsidize? Um, and uh, given that it's time to look at, you know, some, some people's business operations and the numbers they report and the promises they make. Yeah, 100%. Look, let's wrap up with a commercial for the LA Times uh, and your work. And, uh, you know, we had Roddy Boyd on last week, and he he's taken a different approach, which he's set up essentially a charity that funds investigative, deep investigative financial reporting, which is an interesting model. Um, you're sort of the, the last bastion of old school reporting with, you know, uh, traditional beat work, uh, covering a few big names for a traditional newspaper. Um, there's this you know, democratization is, is sort of a too optimistic phrase. It, it Everybody wants everything for free, but then why would you assume that things you get for free are worth anything? Um, we're both loyal subscribers to the LA Times in, in large part because we appreciate reporting and we like to pay for quality content. Um, talk to us a bit about um, where the newspaper industry is and the, the pay for pay for reporting model of the LA Times and, and how our listeners could potentially continue to support some of the shoestring reporting um, that people like you and Dana and Laura Kalundi and Charlie Grant and, uh, you know, there's other reporters on this beat. Um, you know, I, how do you guys make a living and how can our listeners help? Yeah, I would encourage anybody to subscribe to as many newspapers <laughs> as possible. Uh, people give to charity. Newspapers are a charity case these days. 
uh, I think that they're essential to democracy. Um, people that live in cities that don't have a newspaper anymore are giving uh, criminal government officials, uh, criminal business operations license to roam. It's uh, newspapers that expose the flaws of society so that they can be fixed. Uh, it doesn't cost very much to um, subscribe to a newspaper. Um, whether you read it or not, I would encourage you. I, I think you should read the LA Times. I think we're doing a great job since uh, Patrick Sunshine took over the operation. Uh, we've been improving day by day by day. I think it's an excellent publication. Even if you don't read it, keep democracy alive by supporting local and regional and even national newspapers. But uh, don't just subscribe to the New York Times or just to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it doesn't have to be the LA Times. Pick a, a one or two or three local papers to support because newspapers are bleeding money and they won't exist if that continues. Russ, thanks for that perspective. And, and I can uh, wholeheartedly uh, support that uh, proposal as well uh, personally, which is as I've added more newspaper coverage to my daily you know, AM reading routine, uh, my understanding of the issues has certainly deepened and I've uh, well, hopefully been the better for it. Yeah. And Russ, I will say, uh, you're being modest. I subscribe to the LA Times. It comes into my email every morning at 4.30, 5 a.m. Eastern, which is really well time for me given how I start my day and it reads wonderfully on an on an iPad Pro 12.9 inch uh, <laughs> and so it's 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 in my morning reading routine I, I read the LA Times I read the Wall Street Journal I read Bloomberg I subscribe to Bloomberg for for Dana Hull who I quite like and admire and and I think is a wonderful professional reporter um, and I think she gets a hard time from Tesla Q um, and and I think that's very unfortunate because I think she's a very genuine talented old school reporter and, and I have a lot of admiration for, her. you know, I, I, I read the, the, the zero hedge and I read Tony Greer and I, I pay for quality. You know, I, I subscribe to Jim Grant's, uh, interest rate observer because he's been doing it forever and it's really brilliant read and it's really great. And, you know, free is just means you get what you pay for. Uh, and I'm, I'm all about paying for quality and I certainly appreciate the work that you do and your, your peers do at the LA Times and I, I encourage you to continue. But uh, it's been a wonderful hour and change. I'm sure that our, our listeners uh, will be very grateful um, that you were willing to come on the show. We certainly are and, and we appreciate your time. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Friends, in honor of Russ Mitchell and for the sake of a rhyme, Let's read the First Amendment one more time. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Boy, that's good. Hey, TC, TC, do we have to worry about any copyright or anything? Uh, do we got to pay the man? Of course not, Pauls. It's the law of the land.